Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Welcome to Drive-by Cinema Series 2, Episode 13. I'm one of the hosts, Rick, and here's the other host, Paul. Hi, traders. everybody. No, oh, please, don't struck my ego too much. Uh, yes, well, that means uh, that we are reviewing Dune this week, doesn't it, with Paul Atreides, uh, the lead character in that one, and we'll get onto that later. But, Richard, that's not how we start our, mov- our movie reviews normally, is it? No, it isn't. Apparently, Paul, you have some corrections, omissions, and additions. Can we call this one observations? Okay. Because it's certainly not about corrections. Okay. So, okay. Uh, you were describing cold opens that are typically... How Bond movies start, yes. Um, and I was saying, well, sometimes, you know, like, it might cut to the music. I don't know if it does do, but I imagine it would cut to the music, like, when he's hanging off a helicopter, and you don't know what's going to happen to him. And I call this a cliffhanger, but it's not a cliffhanger, because cliffhangers come at the end of a serialised uh, movie or TV show to keep you for the next episode or between our first kind of thing. But my question is, you know, no, if he's, if he's no one a... is getting out of the cinema, you know, after the cold open on Bond, are they? No. No one is going, oh, well, that's, that seems to have settled everything. Yeah, but what what is it there for? I mean, the cold open just refers to the fact that you have action with or without suspense and then, you know, the title sequence and music. What I'm saying is, what if you have a cold open whereby the outcome is unknown and involves suspense and then you cut to it later? I mean, is there a term it, it for doesn't this? happen in Bond, does it? It doesn't happen in Bond. What if it did? What would you call it? In Bond, it's just, you know, five minutes of whimsy and then the music. And the sexy music. <laughs> what would you call it? I mean, can you think of a neologism that you would uh, attach to this specific? Hmm. It's like a hook line, isn't it? In that in that context, it is a hook, isn't it? It's an icebreaker, I guess. Yeah, an icebreaker and a hook. Yeah. Okay. Fair play. And if we'll... we ever see a film with this technique employed, Paul, you'll be able to excitedly point it out. But I can't think of any. No. No. <laughs> Next one. Okay, my next thing is like um, last week. I don't know how. Oh, I guess it must have been during the review of the Green, the Green Knight. Yes, uh, I was making some somewhat flabby observations where things bleed into each other about handshake. Uh, but I think I got my left and right mixed up. I think the jousting stick or prong was typically held in the right. A lance. The lance is held on the right. Yes. So we drive on the left. Yeah, but I, I got I got it mixed up. I'm still none the wiser. Um. I'm not sure which which side do you. Well, we have on. returned. We have retained the driving sides for jousting tournaments in in our country. So we drive on the left. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. So if you want to joust with your cars, <laughs> you can be. And therefore, well, it makes sense to hold your jousting lance in your right hand, doesn't it? If you're right-handed. Sure. And therefore, right must pass right, and therefore you must ride or drive on the left. Yeah. Well, Paul, I have corrections and omissions of my own, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna leave them until the next episode. Oh yeah, he's gonna be humble next time. No, I've got something I need to rant about. Good, save it all up like a bag of like a bag of kali. Like it? Why? Why? Right? Were you ever so poor, like that? Your dad said you're not getting kali this Friday evening. You're gonna get sugar instead. <laughs> Dribble kali. I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm not even sure what kali is. Anyway, I'm sorry. This does not concern any of our younger, younger viewers. Listeners, sorry. Oh my God, I've got brain fog. Go on, Richard, sorry. No, listen, I, I want to do a rant, which I 
before we get into the movie proper, mm-hmm. obviously to see this movie, unless you have got H- HBO, H- unless you've got HBO Plus, you have to go to the cinema to see this. Oh, is it HBO Plus? I don't think that's available in the UK, is it? Because I looked on Just Watch. Exactly. You can't, yeah. As yeah, he said, this is being streamed and released at the same time. I thought, wow, interesting. I'll find out if I can, excuse me, watch it a second time, stream-wise, and nothing was available for viewing. So I think it's just in no. the contiguous North American states, is it not? Yeah, you're out of luck. So we had to go to the cinema. Yeah. And I went again. Well, actually, I didn't go to the Dolby. Did you go to the Traff? I went to the Traff Centre, and I went in the IMAX version. So same seats. Bated breath, bated breath. Okay, Question one, seats. How were they, Richard? Well, they, are they as good throughout the traff or not? Well, the IMAX is the same as the Dolby Cinema with the wow. seats. I don't know whether it's all the cinema screens. Crazy. Like that, but I, I, I'm not going to the cinema in anything but these days. Did you go to a normal cinema <laughs> well, seat? Can I, just, I went to the Odeon, which, you know, is... Same, same thing. Same yeah. thing, but wasn't the traff Odeon. Uh, and I have to say, having had the... Joey and Chandler experience in the seating. It's not <laughs> something I ever want to leave behind. It's something I feel like I have to go no. back to every, every time. Exactly. And I suddenly became really aware of how uncomfortable cinema seats are. <laughs> just no, fucking horrible. And this is a long movie, two and a half hours at least, maybe just a little bit more. And oh god! I, I, but I chosen because I'm so long legged. I chose the the first aisle, which is also best for your, for your eyes. Very few people choose it. It's kind of like you know, just a little bit below the center of the screen. And the first, the first promontory, the first gangway that people exit on, yeah. Uh, and so my legs were able to stretch out. But even so, with that, the seats were too low. Therefore, my bum and knees weren't having the right amount of support to my back. And I was fidgeting within about an hour and a half. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think I, I paid nine, ten pounds for the ticket, whereas for fourteen, fifteen, I don't know how much your IMAX was, but for Dolby fourteen, fifteen, so, uh, I think so the extra five quid is well, 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 well worth it. So. I the cinema showing I went to the particular showing I went to was quite busy, and I could only book on the very front row and an IMAX. And normally I would be a bit worried about doing that because you'd have to like crick your neck, but I wasn't worried in the reclining seats. I just lay back and have a massive IMAX screen in front of me filling my entire visual space, and you know all the leg room in the world. It was amazing, and. Yeah, extremely good. But here's what I wanted to rant about. Okay, when I booked my ticket, maybe two hours before, imagine my delight and surprise when the Odeon included in the price. So it's not a surcharge. They included in the price the booking fee of like one pound or something. Nice. What the fuck is a booking fee, and why would anyone ever be paying that? Oh. They go through a third party booking. Booking, booking uh, system, don't they? Do they? In the same way, Odeon. Uh, I mean, they, it's not their core competency, is it? So it should be, but electronic booking systems are not for some reason their core competency because they're a cinema from the old era, and so. But I wasn't paying an extra quid. They said it was included. Well, in very the price. nice of them, yeah, yeah. And I don't think I would have paid less if I'd stood in the foyer and pressed on their touch screens <laughs> to access presumably the same website. I mean, you can't buy the ticket without booking it, can you? No, That's you can't you actually buy a ticket. It. You can't actually buy a ticket physically uh, at the at the at the cinema. No, you can't do that. So, not anymore. Anyway, you go to a machine to do it. Furthermore, how is it that me buying a ticket in advance somehow inconveniences the Odeon 
or any cinema slightly more than me just turning up at the time. I mean, even when we went... It gives them a, a more reliable load factor, doesn't it? Exactly. When we went to see James Bond, we went to the the machines in the foyer after the film had already started. Actually. We did, actually. Have we got charged it. exactly the same amount, <laughs> presumably including a booking fee. How brave of us. But then, of course, I, I, I was guessing the trailers would be 10 minutes, but I, I wasn't aware that adverts now run for about 10 or 15 minutes. So as it was, we could have gone in quite a bit later, couldn't we, in actual fact? It's all included. But why do they itemise it? Why do they tell me, just to annoy me? That I mean, why, t- why don't tell me about the electricity that they're using or, you know, the, <laughs> the salaries of the staff they're paying? I don't care what you're... Let's just give you me the price. Very, I don't care what your point, fucking fears. Yes. <laughs> because, of course, they're trying to make their prices seem seem smaller than they are. But, of course, for most, for many people, it just it, it's just an annoyance, isn't it? Now, Paul, it's time... It's time that you, and it is you, you put us on to doing Dune a year ago. So, cue the music. So, Paul, Paul. No, listen, listen, Paul. Did you go to movie pictures to see that that Dune? I did, yeah. What did I think of it? Can you explain? Can you explain what it was all about, Paul? I saw a trailer, and to be honest, I I couldn't make an head and a tail of it. (laughs) Can you explain it to me, Paul? Well, see what it is like. You've got this uh, out out outworld humans, yeah. And there's uh, there's not proper rooms anymore because it's future. And there's going to Dune, which is not Sandcastle in Blackpool. That's like uh, another planet. And they're going there. Oh, oh, don't start on planets, eh? Like Mercury came and they're, went since Cyrus. They're going there, not with Anti-Gladys. <laughs> well, they're not going there with Anti-Gladys and Deck Chair. They're going there to conquer. Conquer. How did it go? Exactly. Mercury, Mars, Earth... <laughs> Juniper, June, Uranus, <laughs> my penis. <laughs> Look, right, so it's a dirty one. <laughs> yeah, filthy booger. Right, so I don't know right, where, where we're going with this because I can't stay like this all, all, all episode, Richard. Ooh, uh, you should get this sent to a, a good Western, Paul. You know who the baddies are in a Western. Well, how oh, do you mean? Yeah. Who are the baddies in this duel, Paul? Can you explain that? Who are the baddies in this film? What do you think of music? I, I thought I thought they could have brought in John Shuttleworth or somebody like him. Or that bloke with Big Ed used to be on Granada Reports. Is it Snailians, Paul? Is it Snailians who are baddies in this film? Snail- do you know what Snailians are? Can I you explain? I don't know what Snailians are, no. <laughs> I'm not sure we're doing our, our region justice here, Richard. But anyway, <laughs> we've all met that to blow down the pub. Sorry, yeah, go on, Rich, I can't stay in character for this long. I'm sorry, go on. I don't have an exit strategy for this skip, Paul, so I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. Frank Sidebottom, that's what I meant. We still got Frank Sidebottom on music. Right. Now, this is a conversation that we all had with a relative, a well-meaning relative who doesn't know what, you, what you're talking about, and you have to explain your favourite... 
Star Wars film too. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of half that relative, you know, because I was brought up. Who is Darth Vader anyway? Very much, you know, <laughs> among among the country folk around here. So yeah, there's a part of that relative lives inside me still. I didn't mean anything thicker by that. But look, right, Richard, before you were saying, hey, Paul, you were the first person, you, sorry, you were the one who suggested June almost a year to the day, I would say, perhaps a little more than a year ago, June 84, uh, David Lynch's seminal, uh, seminal work. Uh, and so you were going to say, and you suggested this one too, I did. Is that what you were going to ask me, Richard? Well, you know, you're coming across here like, Really, the guy suggesting Dune, like it, you're a big fan of the franchise. I'm not but a I big. You've read the book. Well, no, you've never read the no, book. no, 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 no. Almost, I've never read the book. I've not read the book recently, Richard. That's a different proposition, really. Because you, last episode, you asked me, "Oh, Paul, have you read the book?" I'm like, "No, I haven't." But I have, in part, like when I was eighteen or, or in part. 16. Okay, yeah, enough for a book report or something. Fine, okay. You've read the cliff notes, Fuck. okay. On the last episode, I did my homework for this. I went back and I listened to the last oh, episode. Okay. Oh God! And you said, "Oh God!" That you had you said that you had ordered the magazine. I have that part of Dune was published in. in I have you know, serialized. Uh, it. It's called Analog, spelt without a U E because it's American. Analog, yeah. So I mean, that's real fanboy stuff, Paul. No, it's real. I want to be an eBay trader stuff because I've I've got a loft now. I've just moved house, so I can I can put things in my loft from the charity shop. Direct to loft, direct to loft, and sell them on that on that bebop or whatever it's called for 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 young for young gisennials. Retro me retro me retro Nike wind cheaters. No, I mean no. It was simply an eBay move. It was you know it was a commercial move, Richard. Look. I said in the last episode, there's many things that I said on the last episode that we're probably going to revisit, because obviously it's the same film. Although, Denis Villeneuve, in this version, is only doing one half of the story that David Lynch tried to squeeze in. That is encapsulated in the, in the first of Herbert's novels, is that correct? Yes, he's done half a novel, Indeed. basically. Yeah. Yes, yes. A sensible choice, I would say. But I did say at the time that I was not really a fan of the story of Dune. Right, okay. Don't really like Herbert's writing. It's as I mentioned, it's been hugely influential. It's very seminal, along with Foundation trilogy by Asimov. It probably sets the tone for space opera and the way science fiction has worked for many a year. And you pointed out one of the best-selling science sci-fi novels ever. Amazingly, because it because I mean the public don't really know about it, do they? Well, I guess they do now. It's not that. Yeah, it's not that popular. It doesn't seem to be that popular. But still one of the best-selling yeah, sci-fi novels ever, incredibly. you know. I mean, everybody knows about Asimov, don't they? Well, it's, it's one of the best... I think it's the best-selling sci-fi series of books. Yeah. It may not be the best-selling sci-fi novel, but you pointed out that Star Wars had directly lifted lots of things. You know, the Jedi are basically Bene Gesserit with the same kind of powers. And Shall we go through that list again? Because I, I found a longer list now. And some fanboy, <laughs> some fanboy site. Shall I dig it up for you or not? You carry on talking. It, it's not important. It, it's true. You know, a lot of sci-fi since that era has taken from or been influenced by. But the um, horrid irony now is that you know younger generations saying Dune is just a Star Wars copy. You see, this is the horrid irony. I don't think that's fair, and that that's why I think we need to bring it up because Dune is being passed true, true, off true. As, as some sort of cheap replica of Star Wars, which isn't fair. It isn't fair because it, it absolutely is not like Star Wars, and that's why partly I don't like it because 
I think the story kind of stinks in a way. Um, it it's never really appealed to me. Let me put it that way. And I, I touched on the reasons last time, but I'm going to be more okay strident about be it. Strident. That does not mean that does not mean it cannot be a good movie. But it's struggling against the story that is a bit weird. Okay, let's just look at some of Star Wars and Dune parallels, convenient or co- co- convenient coincidences. Princess Leia, Princess Alia. Mm-hmm. Villain turns out to be Hero's okay. father. Villain turns out to be Hero's grandfather. That is in number three, yeah, of Dune. No, you need a whiteboard for at this point. <laughs> it's in the second Star Wars, isn't it? I think it's in the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, yeah, which is number five. So there's not a parallel there because it's three and five. Tatooine, or how you pronounce it, I always get it wrong in Arrakis. Uh, Sandcrawler and Sandcrawler, Moisture Farmers and Dew Collectors, Spice Mines and Spice, Jedi Mind Trick, The Voice, Jedi Bendu and Prana Bindu, A Vision of Obi Wan, Vision of Pardot Kinez, The Trade Federation, The Space and Guild. Uh, lightsaber and Alias sword technique. Millennium Falcon, the Duke's ornithopter. Uh, some people using electric binoculars. Fremen using electric electric binoculars. Repulsors, suspensors. Jabba and Leto the second. Okay, and there my screenshot ends. I mean, the parallels <laughs> are, are, are very very striking. Yes, but Star Wars is a black and white. Maybe that's the wrong word, but it's a good versus evil fight. You know who the good guys are. You know who the baddies are, Phil. <laughs> it's Space Cowboy, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Whereas, whereas in Dune, you're almost invited to root for the wrong people. Yes. I- I'm not sure that Frank Herbert would totally approve of the way some of his characters portrayed. On the other hand, uh, you know, he did say of, of... I mean, I mean, he did say of Lynch's film that the one thing he thought he got wrong was... This, the bit at the end where it starts raining. Uh, and I explained that at the time, I think, yeah, in our last you podcast. Did. I remember that. Paul Atreides, the hero of Dune, is not really supposed to be a hero because Herbert is trying to say that you shouldn't follow these messianic kind of characters. Do you have a problem with that in his novel? Yes. That's why I don't like the novel. Well, that he like, says what? that these these characters are graded and should not be you know, seen as heroes necessarily. Is that a problem? You don't think it's signposted well it enough? Ac- mm, I don't think it comes across very well in the first book, you see. Uh, I don't think he... Maybe I wasn't a sophisticated... You know, he's setting up you know, a sense of adulation. Not a sense of adulation maybe in the reader's mind for that to come crashing down later, surely. Maybe so, but I don't think many people stick with the series into the, the later novels because with you. they get worse and worse to read. I don't it's just a chore. And worse and worse to read. Do you mean? Do you mean that that they're they're quite serious in tone? Yeah, they take themselves very seriously. And this film does too, doesn't it? Villeneuve's film doesn't lighten it very. I was going to say there are no jokes in no. <laughs> this movie, apart from one, which is the sizest and uh, slimmest joke about the protagonist, Paul. Paul. Uh... God, sorry, brain fog. Oh, you mean he's gently ribbed by Jason Momoa's. Depiction of Duncan Idaho. Yes, yeah. Yeah. that's the only joke in there. Uh, I, I want to come to that later. What, what is clear is that it's not a white savior novel. It might be a white savior movie, but what I'm reading is, you know, oh Herbert and his white savior complex. And I just, I still have to reiterate, I don't think this is true, you know. And I don't think it is a white savior novel for, for lots of reasons, but mostly because of Herbert's tone. I, although it isn't well signposted, you know, his tone 
is one that seeks to represent the duality and, and perhaps the duplicitous nature of heroes. But also, I mean, this isn't some sort of imperial fanfare. This is very much... No, it's anti-colonial. It's very much anti-colonial. And not just now, but co- contemporaneous with his release, interviews with, with him, Herbert, yeah. he's, he's actually saying these things in, with such a modern voice. This is a, a novel. This is an ecological novel that was future-facing and forward-facing, and still has anti-colonial and e- ecological messages that are really relevant to today. So I really don't. Yeah, the e- ecological side is, and they really emphasise that ecological side in, in Villeneuve's edition. Yeah, rant over. Anyway, sorry, Richard. To continue with what you were saying, you don't like the novel. <laughs> no, I finished saying that now. Oh. But you're right. I mean, those are the great bits about it is that it is way ahead of its time, and those things are increasingly relevant. The white saviour bit comes because, it, I, I, and I said this in the last podcast, and it is def- definitely true. Well, no, the novel also. You know, Herbert took a big influence from um, the Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, but he's now, not presenting it, presenting it as a hero, is he, you see? So you can't really call it white saviourism. That would be like calling The Colour Purple is a racist movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the one hand, you could argue that the Fremen save Paul and his mother, who have been defeated by the Harkonnens, and so they're the saviour of them. But on the other hand, uh, and you could, you could also, some people also point to the fact that Paul's father is described as having olive skin, and I suppose Oscar Isaacs probably is not, uh, you, you might not describe him as typically white, he's Latino, I guess, is he or something? But, but um, the truth of the matter is, Paul is this superhero, right? I mean, he is, and he is white. His mother is white, and he has these superpowers. And ultimately, <laughs> yeah, that's a bit crass, you know. I, I, there's a lot of politics as well, which is weirdly backwards, isn't it? Despite Herbert being forward-thinking, you know, first of all, he deliberately. T- tunes down all the tech. We discussed this before about how yeah. there are no computers and you can't use laser guns because the shields blow up and all atomics are kind of forbidden mostly or taboo. So um, it, it's all down to swords and old fashioned y kind of fighting. And yet, <clears throat> um, despite the fact everything's floating, the spaceships. Um, but additionally, there's this <laughs> also this Game of Thrones esque. Like uh, core intrigue stuff with the Empire yeah. and the Landsrat. And, you know, there's really poor representation of women in the whole Dune universe, right? I mean, uh, you know, the highest power women, women can aspire to is being a concubine in the Bene Gesserit priesthood kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, it's Emperor and he marries his daughter off and all of that stuff. It, you know, it's really shonky sexual politics, and it's really old-fashioned politics as well. And coming back to this whole white saviour thing... Okay. I was trying to... You know, there's a scene which is depicted in the movie, it's written this way in the book, where Paul and his mother are in the desert after they've been basically left for dead by the Harkonnens, and they're escaping, and they meet up with the Fremen. Yes. And Paul has to prove himself. That's right. And apparently... The way Paul is going to prove himself is trial by combat. Yes. You know, as if this is a sensible way. You know, this is the way that this tribe of people who survive in the desert, you know, 
would go about things is that at the slightest offence, they're going to have a fight to the death. And that's the way they resolve things. So, you know, things don't get heated or... Yeah, don't it's, offend this, each other then. It's, 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 a, it's a noble savage thing, isn't it? It's a white anthropologist's, like, take. And I, I, I find myself... I think that's uncomfortable, frankly, We're, uh, which feeds into my dislike of the novel, I think. Okay. Uh, one, I mean, there are some elements, like the eugenics, I think. Uh, that's an interesting anachronism. Uh, you know, he's been bred to be this this Superman. Uh, but I, again, I'm not sure that that I'm not sure this is being put forward as an ideal, is it? You know, I, I, I'm sure we're supposed to view this through <laughs> a skeptic or a, a cynical lens, aren't we? Yeah, agreed. I don't think he's saying this is how it ought to be. But at the same time, you know, he's he's setting this novel ten in the year ten thousand. Yeah. You know, it's like eight thousand years in the future or something. His suggestion, his implication is that we not only have we not progressed, but things have gone backward. It, it isn't a dystopian vision, is it? It's not well. It's not presented as entirely dystopian. You know, uh, I think we're supposed to draw dystopian conclusions, but it's not presented with clear dystopian signposts from the author as it would be in the modern day. So, I, I, you know, I take what you're saying, you know, the representation of women. I mean, in a dystopian world, you know, maybe we would expect women to not have, uh, you know, full roles in society or, or to be limited to what they could do. But I, I understand that he's, he's not presented that in, in a clearly signposted way. Look, Paul, how did this film compare to David Lynch's film? What's the biggest differences? Kung Fu in the Desert. David Lynch famously said there'd be no Kung Fu in my movie in the desert. Exactly. And that's why he gave them all those special guns that responded to the voice. <laughs> Whereas in Villeneuve's version, we now remain true to the book where he was taught a martial art by his by his mother called the Weirding Way. The Bene Gesserit priest to teach the students this. And that's how partly how he's able, despite the fact he's a a, you know, a, a weedy, androgynous boy, how he's able to defeat the Fremen warrior in the trial by combat, which subsequently proves enough to make him the leader of the Fremen, ultimately. It wasn't much of a combat, though, was it, in that little ravine? I, I, I was expecting, you know, more backflips and a bit more a bit more of the weirding way, or whatever it's called. It wasn't very impressive. He just seemed well, to stick you, a knife into the other person's side quite quickly. Could you not say like that? that about all of this movie? Villeneuve... It's very toned down compared to, say, David Lynch, where everything <laughs> could turned up to that. 11. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's beautifully shot, but there was this kind of, like, very grounded feel to it all. Uh, I would say, like, uh, David Lynch and the technology he had to represent the the, the protective force fields. The shields, the, yeah. The shields, yeah. I mean, his kind of looked better than Villeneuve's, I think. Although I they, think, you know, but I said that in the last thing. I thought that was a brilliant bit of special effects. Uh, and so there's all that. And it is quite toned down. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I, particularly uh, the uh, flight navigator. You know, we get in Lynch's, in Lynch's <laughs> movie, we get this representation <laughs> of what's described in the novel, this huge floaty kind of elephantine fishman 
floating yeah. in, in, in yeah. like like something created by Damien Hurst. You know, it's, I mean, plays to Lynch's strengths, doesn't it? Whereas we don't get that with Villeneuve. I don't know what we get in Villeneuve with the Flight Navigator. It's not that we see them, do we? I I don't know. I wasn't sure, but I think when the Emperor arrives on Caladan to see Duke Leto, uh-huh. uh, there's a cup. There's several like. Um, white garbed guys with helmets with like orange helmets on yeah i think they may be the navigators because they're supposed to be breathing spice all the time i see but it wasn't clear although i did love that bit because in that moment you get that line where the fear howard he asks him how much it cost and his eyes go white as he calculates and it's trying to express in that one scene that the fear is a mentat assassin he's a computer as mentioned, they don't have computers. They got rid of them all after an AI problem. So why can't uh, London wanna... cabbies be like this? <laughs> They've still the knowledge, haven't they? But they still need meters, don't they? <laughs> Maybe they're half. I don't know why you can do it all on your phone these days. So yeah, there was that. Uh, I thought it was another aspect that really didn't really compare to to Lynch. I think the 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 spice eyes, you know, the blue eyes. I didn't really get like. The piercing blue that I think Lynch used, I can't quite remember. But no, it wasn't quite as vivid. But no. um, you're right. I mean, Lynch turned it on, down, I, I, and this is definitely t- turned down to like it's it's MTV unplugged, isn't it? This version, you know, I mean, it's like yeah, it's like a Japanese sand garden, isn't it? Of a movie, it is very sad here. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it has. Villeneuve's trademark floating spaceships, you know, massive, like, ellipsoid spaceships just floating and hanging there. Real sense of massive, like, presence as well. I think there are elements, I think there are real nods to uh, Lynch. You know, some of the costumes do seem like they're taking, they're drawing on the Lynchian uh, imagery, which was, I mean, Lynch's style was very much like, fetish wear and you know leather and latex and stuff <laughs> but you know it, it occurred to me watching Villeneuve's movie perhaps even more so Dune is it's rippling and it's dripping with kind of bondage domination su- submission thing yeah it, it's all over the place actually in Dune maybe another reason why I don't really like it because you know it's not enlightened BDSM kind of Consent-driven play, <laughs> but you know it's it's full of these like uh, master-slave kind of relationships. Like so, in Villeneuve, this comes across really strongly. There's the moment where the Reverend Mother arrives to test Paul. Yes, and first of all, she tells Jessica beyond mother, kinky, wasn't it? Very. I mean, because he's an adolescent to start off with. We sp- again, he's supposed to be fifteen, Paul, in in the novel. And and this woman, this the Reverend Mother, who's supposed to be his grandmother, I believe, she arrives, she tells Jessica to go get Paul. So this is the first power dynamic. It's, you know, grandmum telling mum to go and get your grandson. She goes, she doesn't want to, but she has to. She's the Reverend Mother. She goes and gets him out of bed, put your clothes on, you know. Granny's here, she didn't say that. I don't think he knows this at this point. And she uses the voice on him. This is a great bit about the Villeneuve movies. Oh, is yes. The way he depicts the voice. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I don't know how it was in your cinema, but this it, is like being kicked in the small of my spine. Yes. When that yeah. voice came in. I mean, really they, good. You know, they're, they're in the Dragonfly helicopter roids. I don't know what you're called. Oh, the, the Ornithopters. Which are really what represents it. And of brilliant. course, they've, they've, they've got to overpower the, the Harkonnen guards. 
uh, and the way they use the voice there is just it's just brilliant you know it's just it's just how you imagine it to be so I think that's something that he really really does deliver with is the voice oh he nails it absolutely mm. but you know back to this scene you know she orders him with the voice come to him and kneel down or whatever it, it, I'm sure in the book he's not kneeling down this is right. where I feel it's so subdom stuff so he's kneeling in front of this reverend mother who's his grandmother he doesn't know. She tells him to put his hand in a box. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Which he does, of course. And she does the test, you know, where she inflicts this pain on him. And he's not allowed to move. Have you seen the recent TikTok ones? <laughs> what? Well, feely box is, you know, something that is just a mainstay of, like, education. It is not the, the same, Paul. It is not well, the there's same. There's recent TikTok ones where they, they kind of put it in and it, it's like chocolate. And it's like, it's... You know, they put it through a hole that's maybe like a fleshlight or a flesh jack, and there's chocolate <laughs> at the end. And then they take the blindfold off and they, you know, they push the chocolate in the person's face. Kind of <laughs> well, it wasn't jokey like that, was it? You know, he put his hand in there. It wasn't awful. It wasn't chocolate. It wasn't. It wasn't stuffed liver. What was it? It's pure power exchange stuff, and it's pure. You know, you're gonna feel terrible pain, but don't move, don't show that you're in pain. I, I think. I think the little fellow. This was his best moment of acting. You know that that moment where he was representing feeling extreme almost overwhelming pain and not wanting to show it as an adolescent you know i thought this timothy did a really good job here it's brilliant that moment i thought of course there's similar kind of power dynamic stuff going on with the harkonnens of course who are somewhat toned down i think from the harkonnens in david lynch and of course in David Lynch's film, Harkonnens, as we've pointed out many times, were all red-haired, Paul. And yet here... I'm not red-haired, Richard. <laughs> Honestly, stop it. <laughs> but in Villeneuve's vision, in Villeneuve's vision, they're all bald. They're all bald. Well, let's get on to that. I think uh, avoiding the high camp of David Lynch's Harkonnens was a good idea. I thought they came across as a little too theatrical and, and comical almost in the first one. Pantomime. You, yeah. you couldn't really take them seriously. They're much more menacing here. Baron Harkonnen, though, however, he doesn't really float like a giant sort of uh, impregnated queen bee, does it, like he does in the first one. <laughs> and that's disappointment because that, that was one of the good things I thought of David Lynch's well he does float though he does, but float. not in the same sort of way not in the same way no he does however surface from a Blackpool like Colonel Kurtz is it in the apocalypse now yeah what what, what was that was that uh, balsamic vinegar and olive oil I don't know but it's a straightforward Colonel Kurtz reference it's like, well. you, like you dip your, your bread in it didn't it so I, I thought that nod that nod was a little too surely people know the plot yeah, by now. The idea, there's a political intrigue. House Atreides is given control of the spice mining planet Arrakis. It's a trap! It is a trap, but we don't understand why, because again, it's poor writing, if you ask me, on the part, on the part of Frank Herbert. You, you you did explain, you gave a good reason for it last time. You said that the... No, I don't understand it now either. Atreides house... I mean... The Atreides house, you said, where they were too popular with the rest of the lands, right? Yes, and therefore, whatever the political military power of the emperor, when you lose your popularity at court, you are essentially dead. Yeah, that was my argument. I don't think it holds. And if that was the case, why take them to Dune, where they're going to become infinitely rich, if you're not absolutely certain you can take them out there? So it doesn't make sense at all, actually, thinking about it. Yeah, I think the idea we're supposed to believe is that they failed to produce enough spice 
the houses of the land's rat get upset with them, and then the emperor can move. But they don't really wait for that. No, it's only like just... well, it's certainly not in the film. It's depicted as like a matter of a week or two, uh, and then the, the Harkonnens invade with the emperor's help. Yeah, um, but that that uh, nighttime raid, I thought that was, that was very menacing. The way the Harkonnens arrived on the planet, and better than than what Lynch what Lynch d- gone and done. So yeah, I thought it was a big improvement that whole that whole sh- shadowy kind of moment of arrival from the you know from the well, hostile forces. With- with the luxury of more time, it's just more understandable, isn't it? And it is, yeah. And played out better and done more confidently. Also, we don't have characters... We don't have the internal monologue, uh, interior monologue of characters every other second. <laughs> and we don't have massive parts of... Massive uh, chunks of exposition because uh, David has tried to write, you know, film a... a, a a whole novel with a, with a movie kind of thing. So those are welcome omissions, I think, from the new version. Well, I said that I sort of thought that Dune was unfilmable because the novel is full of the internal monologues of characters, as many books <laughs> are, right? But I thought it seemed to be particularly integral into Dune, particularly when Paul is thinking things, because you're seeing his thought processes on, on the page and you're understanding why maybe he is so clever and so smart and so effective. And the big one in the, the David Lynch one is where the... Well, can we just stop a minute? I mean, oh. Luke in Star Wars, we just accept that he can use the lightsaber. We just accept, you know, that there is a thing called the Force. And I think Star Wars benefits from not trying to explain these things. Whereas I think that Dune goes into the mechanisms of these things and that's its fault, isn't it, as, as, a, as a movie. We, we, want, we want complete suspension of disbelief. We want it to be fantastical. Given as the mechanisms of their world somehow takes away that fantasy from 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 the movie. Anyway, sorry, Richard. So the big scenes to contrast is the one that I always thought sort of justified that voiceover is the one where Paul is in his room, having just arrived on Arrakis, and the hunter killer comes out of the wall. <sighs> yeah, which is good in both movies, anyway. Now, in the David Lynch movie, you hear his voiceover explaining what it is. It's a hunter-killer. You know, slightest touch will kill me or whatever. And he also explains that it's got a repulsor field underneath, which is explaining how everything is floating in fucking Dune. And he also explains that he's it's going to be slippery, therefore, and he's going to have to grip it hard, and it's going to be really tough to grab hold of. That all comes through in that moment, whereas in the Villeneuve thing, he just sees that little fly-like mosquito thing. <laughs> and so, I guess... I guess it expresses it, but he, he, there's none of that comes through. I don't know whether it works as well, but I already know it all, so it's easy for me, isn't it? You'd need to ask someone who's not seen either of the movies or read the book, wouldn't you, to see whether that works. But it was stylish, no question. Um, the Trades are betrayed by by the Emperor who sent them to Dune, uh, which is, you know, the land of spice. Tactically betrayed by their doctor, Dr. Yui. Yes. Who, who gives them the get-out clause, clause, though, doesn't he? No, yeah, he'd been turned by um, Baron Harkonnen. And he gives a false tooth, doesn't he, to, to, to Paul's father. His intention is, uh, well, he, he's been turned by Baron Harkonnen, the doctor, because he, he, the Baron has his wife captive, yeah. so he believes. But obviously he harbours a grudge against the Baron as a consequence. So although he does drug all of the the nobility of the house, he does, as you say, replace the Duke's tooth with a poison capsule 
that he can bite down on and exhale to kill all the Harkonnen court when, or certainly Baron Harkonnen when he's in front of Duke Leto. And it nearly works, but the Baron uses his um, floaty stuff to get up to the ceiling and avoid <laughs> most of the gas. Everyone else seems to die. Anyway, so Paul and his mother are driven out into the desert uh, and they have to, they meet the Fremen uh, and they learn to survive with the Fremen. What I thought here was that uh, uh, Villeneuve did a really good job of showing his learning, Paul's learning skills in the desert and desert desert survival skills uh, and some of the nice touches of, if you like, the local culture of the Fremen about how they live in the desert. And I thought that was was maybe a nicer touch than what what, uh, David Lynch had done. But here again, failed by the author, I think. Both David Lynch, well, to an extent, more so maybe Villeneuve. The Fremen have this technique, as we learn, um, to avoid being eaten by the sandworms, which we'll come to in a second, I'm sure. But uh, sandworms are attracted by rhythmic vibrations, such as, such as, say, walking. And so in David Lynch's movie, of course, the famous line oft quoted, oft sampled, uh, walk without rhythm and you won't attract the worm. So apparently the Fremen have a special way of walking. And this is described in the book as well, arrhythmically, so that you can progress in the desert without a worm showing up. In Dennis Villeneuve, see, this is the author. It's, it's Dennis Villeneuve turns it, turns it into the cha-cha slide. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So, so Paul sees a holographic uh, image, oh, doesn't he? A, a video of someone yeah. doing it. And then he shows his mum how to do it later. And he even actually he even says, think of it like a dance. But it is ridiculous, of course. It's unfilmable. There's no way you can do an arrhythmic walk without it looking ridiculous. Like Mistress silly walks, yeah. Exactly. But I thought, exactly. <laughs> you see, this is the point about Allegro and Andante that Star Wars does really well. You know, they decamp and they go and play with some Ewoks and then the battle's on again. <laughs> and that release of tension is what makes Star Wars, Star Wars movies work. You know, and we need yep. it. I mean, I mean, who would want to be on a roller coaster ride that never had a bottom to the hill? I mean, and, and, and I think this is a problem with both Villeneuve and Lynch and maybe the novel itself is it's all it's it's a constant level of threaded tension. You know, the string is always taut. And I think mm. we lose something in the tension because of that. So, since I mentioned the worms, listen, I, I had high criticism for worms, not only in Lynch's film, but also in general, because I think they're silly, yeah. fundamentally. Silly. I don't know, A, how they move through the desert, because I don't know how you get such a massive... They, they just... But they eat the sand as they move through it. You said that, and it's nonsense. And B, I don't know how... What? What? <laughs> I don't know how they That's get how they make food. the spice. That's how they process they, process the spice. I, I don't think they do make the spice. I, and B, I don't know how. Oh, sorry, that's a Skittles advert with a giraffe shitting rainbow <laughs> rainbow poo. B, I don't know how they get enough food. It would be nice if they ate the sand and processed the spice and shat, shat spice. I don't know how they make uh, get enough food in the desert to survive such a bigger animal to survive. I just don't think there's well, they eat energy. little cute mice bunny rabbit things but what i'll say is this so i was fully prepared to come into this film and also hate the worms just as i did in the book and as i did in the david lynch film and another reason why the 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 novel for me is not good but 
what I'll say about Villeneuve and this attempt at Dune is he goes some way further than I've ever ex- I would have ever expected in rehabilitating the worm concept. Well, I mean, in terms of visual effects, he goes the whole hog. I mean, he he does not let go of making the worms look like a viable CGI option. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's like the first thing to say is you ba- you barely see them in this film. You barely see them in this film, which is to his credit. Okay, that's fine. Well, you do see someone riding one at the end, which is a bit silly. Um, <laughs> but what he does is he goes a long way to explaining how they move through the desert like it's water because he's using the process of liquefaction. Now, liquefaction is a real phenomenon. You may have heard of it. It occurs oh, yeah, in earthquakes yeah. sometimes. If you've got granular material and you vibrate it at, at the appropriate frequency... Just not in an hourglass. It Sorry. starts to behave like a fluid. It does and indeed, yeah. In earthquakes, this has been known to cause buildings to sink into you know loose gravel or soil material. I mean, generally sand dunes... Sand dunes, if you, if you you know if you if you study them, they move like wave, like 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 sea waves, you know. Yeah, over hundreds of years. Yeah. Oh, or tens of yeah, years. over about ten or twenty years, they'll they'll move about as far as a wave would move in you know in one or two seconds, but almost almost identical in terms of their flow and their movement. So, so even without liquid liquid liquefaction. They're kind of like waves anyway, aren't they? But did you not like the ominous arrival of the sandworms, you know, and the way that the whole kind of sand started shifting in this movie? Yeah, no, that's what I really love. It's impressive. You could could see people starting to sink into the sand, and I think we're led to believe or we're given to understand that the worms can emit some kind of infrasound, which liquefies the sand. And so people, and that's presumably how they're able to move through the sand so easily. Wow. So, for me, that was a win, a, a great relief, actually, that he'd rehabilitated the worm concept for me. So, as Richard has said, you know, they they head off to the desert. They live with the Fremen. Uh, the Fremen take them in when when Paul proves himself, uh, and then they have to get back to base and and take out the Harkonnen. Is that kind of what happens at the end of this movie? I, I, I was just lost in the in the, uh, in the beautiful shots. What happened at the end? Well, no, you're right. This is the problem with this movie. We stop halfway through the book. Yeah, there's a, a chase through the air, and they uh, fly into a sandstorm, and then they find the Fremen, and they go that's back right. to the Fremen siege, as they're called. And that's it, really. And, that's and it. That's the, movie. that's the end of the movie, and we now wait yeah. for the next one. And we'll let's hope the there is a next one. one. Okay, so uh, all that hanging in the air was, I thought, a little bit disappointing. Uh, what about the music? Did you like the music or not? I thought it was oh, very yeah, atmospheric really and, and very really, really, really good. And yeah. just tied in so well with all the visuals in, and, and the action, just everything in the movie. Just whoever did the movie, music, really, really well done. But what was it like in IMAX? Tell me, Richard. Was that, I mean, was it the experience with the Samworms that more impressive or not, do you think? It's just the whole... The whole vista of it. And, you know, there are moments where Villeneuve makes a really busy screen. You know, the big battle sequences where you're seeing the whole city being bombed or you're looking out over starships. And, you know, in in IMAX, you're looking around. You know, it's like you're there. You can point your, you point your head at one side and you see one of the spaceships and you look over there and there's another thing happening. Yeah, it was really quite impressive. It's a great spectacle and well worth going to the cinema for, especially in a 
reclining seat. Richard, it sounds like although you're not being converted to the world of D- to to the multiverse of Dune, you nonetheless think there are some redeeming factors to this. I've never said you can't make a good movie out of it and around it. One of the problems with the story, right, is they kill off so many good characters at this early stage. <laughs> Duke Leto is a great character. Well, he's certainly really well portrayed by Oscar Isaacs, and I think he's a good character. He dies very early. You've got um, Duncan Idaho, Jason Momoa's character. Seems to be dead, at least. I get the feeling he might come back, but in the book he is dead, at least until the later books, where they clone him because Frank Herbert realised, just like Arthur Conan Doyle, that you don't kill off good characters. You know, you have to bring them back or people get pissed off. They sort of make this mistake again and again, it seems to me, or Herbert does, it's he kills off the good characters. And what you're left with is the whining messiah child and his mum. And, you know, as a kid of, like, a, a single parent, there's an uncomfortable reflection, perhaps, of me. <laughs> I, well, maybe he's too similar to him. Maybe I feel I'm too similar to him. But, you know, I don't want to be seen as the messiah child with the... the, 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 the well, you didn't have mother. red hair. Your name's not Paul, so good luck with that, Richard. <laughs> yeah. The Bene Gesserit, I thought, you know, and this kind of nebulous backroom scheming of a political nature, manipulative nature, I thought was really, really well presented, you know. The power, the, you know, the silent power of the Bene Gesserit. There are two crimes that I lay at Herbert's door that I think are particularly egregious. One is his veneration of the drugs, the spice, which variously in Dune is used to prolong life. The Emperor takes it, so he lives a long time. The Fremen do. It's used for the navigators to navigate... All without lanes. clinical trials. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Richard's making a serious point. I'm not, I'm not going to detract from your point. Make your point. Make your point. <laughs> it's used by Paul Atreides to become the Kwisatz Haderach and see into the future. And, you know, it's pure 60s psychonaut stuff like Herbert must have been. You know, to say, oh, you know, drugs are really powerful and it's like the, it's the next frontier and locking our inner dimensions and exploring our potential well, as human beings. Richard, look what we got from it, you know, from his trip. We got eugenics, we got <laughs> ecological concern. I mean, we didn't get Helter Skelter, did we? We could have had Charles Manson writing this, writing this thing, equally equally likely, you know. So It's all, it's all this age of Aquarius bullshit. Thank you, lucky stars. It could have been much worse, though, is what I'm saying. And what I say to that is, fuck that all. There's this myth in life that, you know, (laughs) artists need drugs to, you know, inspire them. No, they don't. They don't. Almost no art. The only work of art I can think of that was genuinely inspired maybe by by any kind of pharmaceutical or psychoactive, maybe the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Coolidge is wacky enough to to earn that title. But everything else is bullshit. And coincidentally, Paul Atreides does look a bit like a younger Byron here. He does his classic Edward Scissorhands in black. (laughs) But he looks like the young, therefore he looks like a younger Byron kind of thing. So, yeah, but hey, hmm. are we we talked out or not, Richard? I think we are. I fear that we are. Here's the second crime. Here's the second crime. After venerating drugs far beyond what they're worth, the other thing he does that he's responsible for is he plays into the idea, he's a conspiracy theorist, right? Herbert lays the groundwork for a universe in which powerful forces that we don't quite know about, acting in the secret and in the shadows, are pulling strings, and their machinations are governing 
the uh, the fortunes and the outcomes for you know millions of people, and it, you see it in the Bene Gesserit who are uh, engineering the eugenics, the emperor and his little political schemes and his fault flag operations and the Harkonnens, and you see it in Paul Atreides who's you know manipulating the Fremen to do what he wants and you know using the voice here and there as well, uh, and it all feeds into people who think that you know the Builder Bear Group and the uh, the, the Illuminati are, are controlling the world and giving us the pandemic and all of this other bullshit. So yes, I mean it's it's quite two dimensional in the way that in the way that everything is under the control of of some higher or deeper order. So I would concur with that. Perhaps it's not possible to make a satisfying narrative in which the great leaders just go, oh shit, that, that, that wasn't supposed to happen. Oh well, let's make the best of it. <laughs> but that's the reality, right? You know, that would be the Boris Johnson movie. Is, Fuck knows what's going on. <laughs> See how long I can stay in power. Paul, let's do acting then. As a score, okay. kind of. So we're finally talked about. I, 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 I mean, we've we've had a good chat about this one, and it's time for the scores. Acting, yeah. Let me look at my score because I've ri- I've actually written atypically. I've written these down. I tend to score them right as we as, as we're asked for the scores. Uh, the acting, I was just genuinely impressed with. I thought Timothy carried the lead role pretty well. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that he's the boy that's written in the novel. I think the boy in the novel is somewhat more naturally athletic than Timothy showed. You know, I, I'm sure his desert kung fu would involve somersaults and leaping. Uh, uh, but aside from his ability to portray the character in, in, in a way that I thought might represent the, the boy in the novel, pretty strong. Uh, his mother, Jessica, really, really strong, I thought. Uh, and uh, his grandmother, you say, the, the leader of the Bene Gesserits, I thought hmm. oh, Charlotte Rampling stole it. Just just such malevolent intensity. So I'm going to score the acting eight. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think all, all the leads were strong. All the critics seem to love his mum, Jessica uh, Ferguson, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Also, I thought Oscar Isaacs was really good. He's, of course, a Villeneuve favourite, isn't he? Uh, yeah. But again, you don't. Unfortunately, we don't see all that much of him. Uh, yeah, the su- the supporting cast I thought was really good. I enjoyed it. Um, uh, what's he called? Uh, all Bardem. Big names, aren't they? Javier Bardem, the uh, Stilgar, the Fremen leader, and and the guy from Goodwill Hunting, who's like, if you push him, if you push him too hard, if you push him too hard, he's never going to make a success of himself. The Swedish actor, I don't know what his name is, Svergal Svergbard or something. <laughs> you mean uh, uh, the guy playing the Baron? Yes, the guy playing uh, Colonel Kurtz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he reminded me of the guy in The Mandalorian who isn't really an actor, but who got the cameo part to be like the second honcho of Werner the Guild. Herzog. The yes, he reminded me a bit of Werner Herzog. <laughs> he did remind me a bit of him. Uh, mostly because of accents, I guess. But I thought, no, this is the guy from Goodwill Hunting. And it turned out to be the guy from Goodwill Hunting, which is really amazing. Wow. I'll give it an eight for acting. An eight. Well, thank you. We agree. Enjoyable. Okay. What about the... And I know this is going to be a weaker score. What about the story and plotline? 
it's June, isn't it? So now Villeneuve made a couple of changes, minor changes, I think, to the what I remember from the book. I don't think in the book I don't think Stilgar comes and has a word with the Duke. I think you first meet Stilgar when Paul has the fight with the Fremen, uh, to, you know, gain their trust. With you. I'm not sure what was served by that except to try and portray the Duke as a more conciliatory leader of the planet and less rapacious, you know, by, you know, making a deal and giving his word to the, the natives, as it were. I'm not sure what that, how that really works. Um, and I think also that whole bit, after they were, after they es- escaped from the Harkonnen in the desert, they meet... Duncan Idaho and the ecologist. I don't think that happens in the book. I don't remember that happening. But I think they needed to use Duncan Idaho more because he's a good character and they wanted to. So good character, yeah. That makes sense. Um, Villeneuve is obviously pushing harder on some of the things we talked about. The ecological angle, the anti-colonial angle. You know, these are the strongest bits of the Herbert novel. But it's still Frank Herbert, isn't and they're it? all there in the original novel. So yeah. what I'm saying is, although you're right, there is some there is some white savior elements to his writing. There's some stinky stuff there. Yeah, it's not enough to dismiss it as just white saviorism. No, it's it's far more complicated and layered than that. It's contrary to elements to it, and yeah. there's a tone to his writing that puts him at a distance from from what he's describing. So, but I still I don't like it. I've just never liked you. No. It doesn't please me. So I'm going to give it a five. He doesn't have to. Okay, I don't oh, have to gosh. like it. It can still be good. Whew. But I'm not Came in with a slap around the face there with the five. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> well, you know, the plot isn't the strongest part of this movie, but I'm going to score it a 7.5. Ooh, I'll wow. say that. Um, <laughs> okay. Effects. Special effects. Knockout. Oh. Out of this world. Look, those ornithopters. Stunning. Really difficult to do, right? When they're described in the book, you know, some kind of flying craft with flappy wings. It's very difficult to imagine. David Lynch, uh, you know, he did something with them. They weren't amazing. They were a bit odd. Obviously, it was a David Lynch film. But here, they look like military hardware. Really, really, really good. A really, really well conveyed. But we know it must be possible because that's how dragonflies fly. So, so yeah. Yeah, just scale them up. Simple. Straightforward. Brilliant. <laughs> so, so, for all of that and the general very high standard of special effects, I've got to go with a 9, I think. Right. I was expecting a 10 from you. But I, I went 9. And for all of the above, you know, uh, just brilliant, really brilliant. I mean, there's nothing I can find to fault about the effects at all, in actual fact. So finally, on to what? Science. It's science fiction. We normally do science. The hard science in this and the imaginative science. Let's put them both together. What do you think of it all? Well, we've still got Herbert's worms, I don't believe. Uh, but we have liquefaction. We yeah, I did find them more convincing. I did so I wish I could remember what I scored it last time around for science. <laughs> we get a lot of floating lights still, which I'm sure are in the novel as well. A lot of things floating. Um you know, I'll give it a six for science. Ooh. It's not too high score. I'm gonna score it a seven point five. Uh what for ecology? Maybe. Maybe. No. I mean just uh just for everything that was in the movie, particularly, I thought the ways, you know, the approaching sandworms, you know, the use of thumpers, surviving in the desert, the, you know, the dew collecting in a tent and that kind of stuff. Just all of those aspects, describing the terrain 
and the climate of June. I just thought it, it was very convincing. Fascinating, I thought. Very convincing. So a 7.5. Final score for me for June is a resoundingly recommended 9. I don't know how you feel about it, Rich. I'm going to give it an 8, right? I don't remember what I gave um, Frank Herbert's. We gave it 5s and 6s, I think. I thought I gave it a big end score because I think it's spectacle that you've got to see. Oh, you gave it a, you gave it two scores, actually. You gave it a duality of scores. I did, didn't I? I went quantum on it. Yeah. Um, the thing about this is, this is a very competent, but slightly, dare I say, dull rendition of... You, you can say that. You can say that, definitely. There's not one joke in there. Like I said, there was no andante. There's no humorous Ewok moments. I think the, the sand dance... Would have been the perfect moment to, you know, to put a kiss in between the heroine and the hero and a bit of jokiness, you know. The heroine maybe, and the you know, hero, some... where he's him and his mother. Oh, yeah, mate. Oh, sorry. Oh, they, hadn't met, they hadn't met the beauty at that point. Okay. Sorry. Well, at any point, he could have changed his position. It could have been a moment where they kiss and also he does some Michael Jackson moves, you know, and he gets it wrong. <laughs> there could have been some bathos in there and made it a bit more Star Wars here. Just a little bit of lightness in all this, in all this. Dare I say doom and gloom? So yeah, I, I thought the emotional tone was too constant in this movie, and I think it, it it does let itself down because of that. Well, there's more of it to come. We hope. If see, this is a there risk, definitely is more. Uh, have they filmed the cumes? The cumes are good. After the first weekend, we're already at two hundred million. So okay. it might not break even, but it's definitely going to get a second play. <laughs> and well, we would have had some rabbits, some June rabbits, like we got in this one. Just it's a not scarier, a rabbit; it's a jaboa. It's, Thank it's you. actually a, a desert mouse, which is what he names himself after. What do you call the mouse shadow in the second moon? We call that one Mordib. That's, that's where the name comes from. Wow, Richard. Gosh, deep Dune knowledge there. There is, on the back of all this, a reprint of the original Dune board game. There are two Dune board games. They've both been reprinted. They're both out in, you know, whatever gaming workshop that you buy your normal gaming stuff at. The Dune uh, role-playing game, I think, is a new version. There was one originally. There's a new one out with, you know, with bits and pieces that reflect the new movie. So it it must be endorsed in some sort of way. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued about what it is. I think it's just Risk with some you know, Dune effects, having on. But it would be interesting to get hold of that and see what it's all about. The Dune board game. Oh, well, that can yeah. be arranged. And, and the Dune role-playing game, too. Okay, Paul. So, that's Dune done, and a little chapter... And what was your score again? Your score was what? Seven or eight? I didn't eight, say my score. Yeah. I'll give it an eight. No, that's a real recommend for Richard, because I know how much he hates this, this, this whole Dune multiverse. Look, the story's bad, but the movie's good. How can I, can I explain? But dull. I, I'd agree. You know, it is a bit dull. But you go there, just go there and enjoy it as you would an art gallery because it's it's stunning and beautiful. You're not really going to enjoy it as such. But yeah, it's you. No. Yeah. You, you, well, improve yourself like yes, you would improve in Improve yourself. Gallery, That's a good way of putting it. Yes. So ends chapter of Drive by History, Drive by Cinema History, where we have finally seen both dunes that exist now. Uh, <laughs> I suppose the next chapter will be when we see this. It's the, the making of. Well, it's the making of the Dune that never got made. Oh, John Boskis. Maybe oh. we should do that. It's the Bandersnatch of all movies, I think. Not the movie I'm going to suggest for next week. Oh. Do we have a choice or not? Or are we just getting a straight suggestion? Well, I know this is going to be published long after Halloween, ah. because that is the nature of recording things. And not like we don't do horror movies every week. <laughs> However, but... you did suggest a movie called 
a classic horror movie. Yeah. Which yeah. is not simply a description of what it is, but actually the name of the film. Which, wow. again, I worked out is about £14 pounds cheaper than going to see you. <laughs> so, presumably it's on a streaming service? It's on Netflix. And when was it made? This year. Oh, another new movie. Gosh, it's like we're pretending to be younger than we actually are. <laughs> so, a classic horror movie for next week. Thank you for tuning in. See you in the next one. Goodbye. Thank you.